Let's begin our journey through 2 Corinthians. If you want to take out uh, your Bibles from the seat pockets in front of you, we will pick up in chapter 1. And as you head that direction, we've spent uh, since February already of this year uh, in 1 Corinthians. And by the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, hopefully by the end of this year before Christmas, we'll wrap up 2 Corinthians. But what we find is Paul has planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And the location geographically of Corinth is a region known as Achaia, which is essentially southern Greece. And so if you look at the country of Greece, Achaia is located down towards the southern tip on an area known as an isthmus. And an isthmus is essentially a narrow strip of land between two larger bodies of water. And so for Corinth, they had the Aegean Sea on the east side and the Ionian Sea on the west side of Corinth. And the reason that that is important for us to understand culturally with them is it made Corinth a very popular trade city because ships that were coming around the southern tip of Greece would find this travel particularly treacherous. And so what they would do is actually sail into Corinth and they would literally pick the ships up and carry them across the nearly one mile and set them over on the other side. Now, many of you might wonder why not build a canal, great idea, that took until the late 1800s to finally get the Corinthian Canal constructed. And so uh, up until this time, carrying the ships across was the best way for them to transport goods from one side to the other. Now you can imagine this process didn't happen overnight. And so what would take place is the sailors would come into Corinth. Uh, It would take several weeks for them to get the ship to the other side. And now you've got sailors who have gotten a paycheck They got a little change in their pocket going, jangalangalang, right? Just like the Georgia satellites. They would have a little bit of money in their pocket, and so what are they going to do? They're going to go spend it in Corinth, which meant it was a very wealthy city, a ton of retail, but what you also can imagine about the sailors is, man, while you're at port, it's time to let it rip. And so for the sailors, they would let all kinds of things rip. This is why uh, Corinth was known as the Las Vegas of the old empire. I mean, what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. In fact, a thousand temple priestesses would come down every night from the temple of Aphrodite and visit the sailors and worship with them. Essentially, prostitution was running rampant. And this is the city where Paul decides to plant a church of all things. Now, many of us are wondering why on earth would he do that? And yet what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 is uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And so what happened in Corinth is truly, as sin was abounding all around, the grace of God was actually poured out on this church. They were incredibly gifted, incredibly blessed as a church, all kinds of spiritual giftings. And yet their struggle, and Paul writing to them in his first letter, was with maturity. They did not love one another. The fruit of the Spirit is love. They had giftings, yet they had no fruit which was played out in their lives. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians to address this. And at the end of 1 Corinthians, at the end of our time a couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul as saying, look, I'm going to come and visit you. Chapter 16, verse 5, he says, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. And so Paul, allowing the Lord to actually direct his steps, but what he says is, I want to come and check up on you. 
And so likely Paul was able to go and check up on the Corinthian church after receiving his letter. But what we also believe is that he sent Titus ahead to hear how are the Corinthians doing? How was the letter received? And eventually Paul makes his way back to Philippi where he joins up with Titus and he finds out the letter was received uh, not great. (laughs) That in fact the Corinthians received Paul's letter and for many of them they flatly rejected his letter. Not only did they reject it, but like uh, none of you would do, but like sometimes I can do when I feel attacked, um, they attacked back. They actually came after Paul. They were defending themselves and their actions and so they, they cut Paul down. And so Paul now is writing this letter from that mindset, that he has been cut down by people that he loved, folks that he had invested in and spent time in. And you might imagine as he's writing this letter, man, the anger had to be coming out of his fingertips. And yet, that's not how Paul writes to them. He writes from a broken heart, one of love. And in 2 Corinthians, we get likely the most personal letter from the Apostle Paul of any of his writings through the New Testament. He is going to show us his heart. He's going to show us his passion for the people and give us details about his life that we don't get anywhere else. So all that uh, to lead us to verse 1 of chapter 1, 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And so Paul begins by addressing himself as the author, but then from there he gives us his title, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, why would this be important? Well, in other letters, Paul addresses himself also as an apostle, but he also addresses himself as other things, depending on the audience that he's writing to. He will refer to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Philemon, he even says Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But in this spot, he decides to say, I am an apostle. That word just means uh, sent one. And the reason for that is likely because they were questioning his authority. Is he truly an apostle? Is Paul really called into this? I mean, look at his life. He's poor. He's not a great speaker. Look at the suffering he's endured. Are you sure this is really Paul's calling? And Paul makes it very clear in this very first verse where the calling was received from. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And so this is important because um, we can often question ourselves and our motives. I typically don't even know my own motives. But when it comes to a calling, Paul says, um, I know that I was called not by man. It didn't matter that I was ordained by people or seen by anyone as an apostle. I have been called by the will of God. Which means no matter the state we're in, the spot we're in, if we're depressed on where we're at, we can always go back to the calling. Paul would say the call is the prize. And so he's looking at his life and he says, look, it doesn't matter if you question me or not, I have been called by the will of God. And it's that calling that actually sustains Paul through these difficulties. He also writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. Again, this region that's known as Achaia, but he wasn't addressing just anybody. He was specifically addressing those who are members of the church who he refers to as saints. And so if you don't leave here feeling good about yourself, here's the good news. Uh, You're a saint, right? He's addressing these saints. But what is a saint truly? A saint is a sinner saved by grace. That's the definition of sainthood. To be a sinner saved by grace. It wasn't a group of perfect people. They didn't have it all together. But what they knew is they knew one who was perfect, who did have it all together. And them being saved by grace, they could trust in Him and in Him alone. And so Paul writing to these saints there in Achaia, 
He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's Paul. Again, remember the backdrop. He's writing a letter to a group of people who have badmouthed him. They've spoken all kinds of things about Paul. And Paul's initial greeting to them is grace to you and peace. Grace, that is the common Greek greeting of the day. Charis, it means grace to you. And then peace, shalom. He gives them this beautiful greeting, but it's always in that order when Paul greets people, and it's always in that order for a specific reason. Now, going back to uh, the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're actually introduced to a guy that you probably know named King David back in chapters uh, 15 and 16. But David, at this point, he's already conquered Goliath, and now he is the most popular man in all Israel, which shouldn't be a problem unless you're the king. And so King Saul was the king at the time, even though David had been anointed and Saul hated David. And to make matters even worse, uh, David had actually become his son-in-law. He had married his daughter of all things. So now inside this family dynamic, you've got a father hating his son-in-law. So much so that uh, at the dinner table, uh, Saul would pick up a javelin, a spear, and throw it at David. Now, for many of you who have father-in-laws, maybe your relationship isn't great, but have you ever had a spear thrown at your head? I'm guessing not. This is what dinner looked like, though, for David. He had a spear chucker for a father-in-law. Now, if you grew up like I did uh, in Clark County, my natural reaction is if you chuck a spear at me, uh, I'm going to pick up one. I'm actually going to chuck two at you. I quickly become a double-fisted spear chucker. I'm looking to chuck two at you because I'm going to make it hurt. Make it last a little bit. And yet, for David, uh, he elected not to do that. In fact, for years, he was chased all throughout the wilderness by his father-in-law who wanted him dead. To the point to where finally Saul, in chasing David through the Judean desert, he winds up of all places in a cave uh, in the Old Testament because we don't understand Hebrew quite that well in our English. But Saul goes into a cave because he had to use the bathroom. So he's now in the cave Using the restroom, it just so happens to be the very cave that David and his men are hiding out in. I mean, imagine this kind of delivery. This is your enemy delivered right there to you. And David's guys, man, they come up to him and they're like, this is the moment. This is the moment you've been waiting for. In fact, his nephew comes up and is like, hey, I got a great idea, Uncle Dave. How about you? How about you kill him? How about we run a sword, a spear clean through him like what he tried to do to you? In fact, I'll make it easy for you, boss. I'm just going to run a spear right through this dude right now. You don't have to get your hands dirty. And yet David responded in 1 Samuel chapter 24, uh, verse 6 with this. Uh, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David's response was, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to give him grace. Why would David do that? Because I believe this was not only the king of Israel, this is also his father-in-law. And if he ever desired to see peace, he was going to have to be willing to give him grace. And so the reason is Paul is writing this letter that he always says any of his Pauline greetings are always grace and then peace is because if we desire to have peace in our relationships, peace with people, we must be willing to give grace. It doesn't happen the other way around. It doesn't happen when we're determined to be a spear chucker. And that's difficult. And for many of us, we wonder, well, how, how can I possibly give grace 
in this situation? Well, it's only possible to give grace if you first received it. And so if you desire to, to know the peace of God, you have to also first experience the grace of God. And what is grace? But, but grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's getting what I do not deserve. So as I come to the realization that I have received the grace of God, He's forgiven me of all my list, most of which people don't even know about, the things I've done and thought. As He's forgiven me, I now have a peace. They go, man, who am I to hold anything over anybody else? And so the grace must always precede peace if we so desire. Now, Paul continues in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us, verse 4, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolations also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or, if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Verse 7, Our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake in the consolation. And so what we know about Paul is he had an immense amount of struggles. I mean, his, his missionary journeys, his church planting record uh, was one that was spelled out by difficulties. I mean, his life was not easy. And, and at times, Paul would look at his life, and what he actually tells the Philippians in Philippians 1.21 is this, look, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I mean, I'm living here because I'm looking forward to sharing Jesus with you all. But what I know about my life, looking at my track record, is to die means I'm with my Father for all of eternity. To die is actually gain. But for the Corinthians, they looked at Paul's life and they said, you've you got to be kidding me. Is this guy called? I mean, look at the way he suffered. But in light of that suffering, Paul says here in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of mercies. He refers to God as the Father of mercy. And I just mentioned that uh, grace is getting what I don't deserve, but mercy is not getting what I do deserve. And so as he refers to God as the Father of mercy, so often when we're in the midst of suffering, when we're hurting, I don't know about you, I wouldn't always verbalize this, but in my heart, I'm usually crying out, why God? Why God? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to suffer like this? I don't deserve this. And the reality is, you don't deserve this. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, actually what you deserve, the wages of sin is death. So, there's your uplifting moment for today at Woodlawn Chapel. You know what you really deserve? Death. And hell, by the way. That's what we actually deserve. It's, it's far worse than we could have imagined. And yet the God of mercies, He doesn't give me what I deserve. That's the beautiful thing. This is the message of the gospel. He doesn't give me what I actually deserve. And on top of that, at the end of verse 3, He is the God of all comfort. So not only does He not give me what I do deserve, but then He provides comfort on top of all that. And so to go back to the Old Testament, a couple of weeks ago I read to you from Joshua as he began his journey taking over the country from Moses and in chapter 1, the Lord has to come alongside Joshua and say, look, be strong, be courageous. I'm never going to leave you, Joshua. I'm going to be right there. And why did he have to say that? Because Joshua was terrified. 
It looked very, very imposing. And so the Lord gives him encouragement. But by the time you arrive to the end of Joshua's run in overseeing the nation in chapter 21, verse 45, listen to what he writes down. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Joshua's reflection back on his career was, as the God of comfort comforted him, every single thing the Lord said would come to pass. All the good things that he promised, all the things he said he would do, he never one time failed. Not a word of it failed. All of it came to pass. And there's a tremendous comfort in knowing that while God can do anything, there are some things that he cannot, and that is he cannot go back on his word. He cannot fail. He cannot fail, unlike me who fails regularly. And so there's comfort when we realize He is the God of all comforts. His promises are going to be true. And as He comforts us, this word that Paul uses here several times through this passage is the word of paraclete in the Greek. And as He comforts us, paraclete, He actually gives me the ability. He equips me as I'm going through my tribulation to be able to then eventually comfort others. And so the thing about your situation, what you're going through individually, it is your own personal experience, and yet there are others who are going through something similar. And as you are experiencing whatever it is the Lord is bringing you through that trial, through that tribulation, He is also putting people in your path that have a similar experience, and now you have a special insight. You have empathy into that thing. I, I probably don't because I haven't experienced exactly that. I've got my own set of circumstances that I've been through. But in this spot, as He comforts us, as He becomes the paraclete to us, we now have the ability to comfort others. Now, this word paraclete appears in John chapter 14. Jesus here speaking to the disciples in verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father, and I will give that He will give you another helper. The word there is parakletos, that He may abide with you forever. And so Jesus is now praying for us to receive the parakletos. And if you skip ahead to verse 26, he tells us who that is. But the helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And so the promise of the Father is to actually give us the comforter. Give us the Holy Spirit to reside in us, to, to live in and through us, so that as we're experiencing tribulation, it's as we're experiencing these why me God trials, He actually comes alongside to be our comfort. And, and in response to that, we now have an opportunity to supernaturally, this is amazing, is we now have an opportunity to be comfort to someone else. We can share the Holy Spirit experience that we've experienced because the Lord promises right here, He's going to bring those things to your remembrance. He's going to bring to you remembrance of all the times where He had cared for you. Sometimes even when you weren't walking with Him. He's going to bring those things up that the, that the Holy Spirit has done in your life. And that is a consolation not only to you, but also to others at the same time. Now something I didn't get in the notes, uh, one reference, but it's uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. John here writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate is the word, you guessed it, parakletos. 
The same word John writes that Jesus mentioned in John chapter 14, John now refers to Jesus as the parakletos who is uh, there to deal with our sins. You see, sometimes we have suffering based on circumstances that we can't control. Things outside. And there we receive the Holy Spirit. And He, he gives us comfort. But then there are other times, if you're wired at all like me, where man, I bring it on. I mean, I do some dumb stuff. Stupid things that I bring on myself. I've got sin issues I'm working out. And so here's the beautiful thing. As I'm working through these sin issues, John says, if anyone sins, raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. If you're a sinner, you know if anyone sins, I'm an anyone. We have an advocate. It's translated here advocate because the parakletos, while it means helper or comforter, it also means defense attorney. I have a defense attorney in Jesus Christ, the best kind of defender who will stand in the gap for me between the Father and I. And so his wrath that I deserve is actually going to be pronounced on me. My defense attorney can say, no, no, wait a minute. (laughs) Not for this one. This one's one of mine. He, He trusts in me. He believes in me. And so now I have one to actually comfort me through my own sin issues because I've seen him defend me. As we experience life together, as the church comes together, we now have the opportunity to be able to share in those experiences with one another. But it's going to require something scary, um, a word called vulnerability. That as we become vulnerable with each other, where so often um, the temptation is to just have that fake Jesus smile all the time, I got it all together. Uh, The reality is where the spirit, the comfort is actually poured out is when we're real with one another. You know, I ain't got it all together. I don't have it all figured out. I'm working through this thing. I got sin stuff. The Lord, thank God, He's my advocate. He's my parakletos. But we can come alongside one another, and that actually becomes therapeutic for both you as you share and for the one that you're coming alongside because we all have tribulations. Uh, the thing about the Christian life is this. Um, you're either going into a tribulation, you're in the middle of a tribulation, or you're coming out of one. I wish I could tell you there was some other spot to be in, but that's the reality. You might as well get the truth. You're either coming into one, you're in the middle of one, or you're coming out of one. And whatever spot you're in, someone else is in a spot similar to you. And so you have an opportunity to actually have therapy with one another as we share in the comfort that we've received. Now, verse 8, Paul continues and says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. And so here Paul again, like he did in 1 Corinthians, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And the topic is of sufferings. I don't want you to be ignorant of what it looks like to have suffering. And Paul references an issue that happened in Asia. Likely he's talking about an incident in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and then the city of Ephesus. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 19, Paul leaves Corinth, he goes to Ephesus, he plants a church, and man, the Spirit is poured out there in Ephesus, and people are coming to know Jesus in droves. It's an awesome revival that's taken place, and it's so exciting to be a part of that. And yet, what also happens is, as people are coming to know Christ, they're casting off their witchcraft and their magic books and all their idols of Diana. Uh, They're thrown into a pile. They're setting fire to all of it, which seems great, unless you're a guy named Demetrius and your job is idol making. Uh, You're not particularly thrilled about people burning the idols that you make your living 
uh, building these weird little multi-breasted goddesses of fertility, Diana. I mean, they're just creepy. But this guy, he's upset. And so what happens is he brings charges against Paul. And then a riot breaks out in Ephesus where people in the town square are chanting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And you can imagine, if you put yourself there in that scene as Paul, here's all this work that Jesus has done through you. All these wonderful things you've been able to see. People coming to know the Lord, being baptized, the church is growing, and then a riot breaks out. Lord, really? Like, this is the spot that I'm in. But Paul's being honest with them. He's saying, look, I'm in this spot, a burden beyond measure, above strength, where we despaired even of our life. Paul's saying, I wished in that moment I was dead. I'd rather have been dead than been in that spot where I had caused a riot of all things. I just wanted to love people. And so Paul is being very truthful and heartfelt. I despaired of my life. And he continues in verse 9. He says, yes, we had a death sentence in ourselves that we could not trust in ourselves. How bad was it? How bad was it really in Ephesus, Paul? It was death sentence bad. It, it was, I'm, I'm at the guillotine. I'm getting ready to be hung. That's how bad this thing was. And in this place, Paul says, I was so desperate, I couldn't even trust my own feelings, my own emotions. If you've ever been through a trial or a tribulation of suffering, how often have you been there? Where you couldn't even trust your own emotions. You couldn't even trust how you actually felt. Is this even real? And so Paul was not able to trust in himself or his own wits in this spot. Back to the Old Testament in Genesis uh, chapter 25 are introduced to a character that goes throughout the rest of the book named uh, Jacob. And there, Jacob was the younger of two boys that were born to Isaac and Rebekah. And as Rebekah is giving birth to these two boys, uh, in Old Testament times, however a baby came out and looked, they would just name the baby that. And so the first baby that's born is Esau. In Hebrew, that word means Harry. And like, he's a fuzzy little guy. Let's call him Harry. And so they named him Harry. But what also happened is his twin brother has a hold of uh, Esau's heel. And so as they pull the first baby out, the second baby's got his hand right there on his heel. And so what do they name him but Jacob, heel catcher. And so now you've got these twin boys, uh, Harry and the heel catcher, coming up in the household of Isaac and Rebekah, and it's constant turmoil. And, and the name for Jacob, it truly played out through his life because uh, throughout Genesis 25-31, through 31, he was truly a heel catcher. He was looking for any way to get an advantage. He survived on his own wits, and man, he was crafty at it. Until the day in Genesis 32 when he was getting ready to run head on into his brother, who he hadn't seen for decades, who he had swindled, heel caught out of his blessing, out of his inheritance, and now he's getting ready to meet this dude face to face, and Jacob is torn up about it. There's no place left to run. There's no place to hide. What we're told in Genesis 32 is as he laid his head down, he wrestled with God. He wrestled that night with God. Wrestled with how this situation is going to go. And as he's wrestling with God and he's wrestling with it, how am I going to get out of this? How is this all going to play out? What the Lord does there in verse 25 is he touches his hip and his hip goes out of socket. You can imagine the pain and yet Jacob's still not going to let go. He's hanging on to the feet of God. And he says, let me go for day breaks is what the Lord says. And Jacob responds, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's crying this out to the Lord. And he, and he says to him, what is your name? And he responded, Jacob. 
And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Yisrael. For you have struggled with God and men and have prevailed. So that day, Jacob goes from being a heel catcher to being Israel, which means ruled or governed by God. He goes from a man who was determined to only do things based upon his wit and his intellect and to craft this thing out to make it all come out for him, to being one to know he had no place left to turn but God because Jacob was as good as dead. Verse 9, I could not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I couldn't trust in myself, Paul says, because I was a dead man. But here's the thing, I know a Savior who, who resurrects the dead. This is, this is Jacob's life. He was as good as dead as a heel catcher, but through enduring this tribulation, he was actually raised back up again, governed by God. All his schemes and all his wits had led him to this place where he had no way out. But Lord, the Lord made a way. And so the question for us to pose is, can I truly say that I trust in the Lord to bring me out of this trial? Can I rely on Him? Have I relied upon Him? And if so, does my life actually reflect it? Does my life reflect that I am one who is a heel catcher or one who is actually ruled or governed by God? Now as we wrap up with these final two verses for this morning, Paul continues, and he says, Who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that He will still deliver us, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us by many. And so Paul concludes our time this morning by saying this, God has shown up in the past, in the present, and in the future. He says here, He, he who has delivered us from so great a death, who does deliver us, and whom we trust that He will deliver us. What was Paul's relationship with Jesus like? It was past it was present. It was future. He was confident in what his future was going to look like because he had seen him do these things in the past. What a wonderful thing to walk with Jesus and be able to say, Lord, I've seen you work in my life. I trust that you're going to continue to do just that. And as he uh, commends the church in Corinth, he says that you've helped us together in prayer for us. He actually commends them for being intercessors in prayer. And I think I want to I wanted to put an emphasis on that, that they had interceded on behalf of Paul. Whenever we hear of things or difficulties in people's life, um, so often we want to be interveners. We want to get in the middle and get our hands dirty. What can I do? How can I fix it? How can I help? But what the Lord wants us to first do is actually be intercessors before we become interveners. He might call you to intervene, but He most certainly has called all of us to intercede. And so if someone shares a difficulty with you uh, in their life, I want to encourage you to first intercede. When they share something, don't just simply say, I will pray for you. I want to encourage you to actually pray. When we were first coming to know Christ and we had arrived in Farmington, Missouri, I was as far away from Jesus as I could possibly be. And Angela meets these two ladies at a homeschool PE thing at the Civic Center. And on the way out the door, she's asking this woman, where do you go to church? And then also just follow-up questions, the lady's asking her things about our life. And she finds out just how dark it really is in our household. And the lady says, I'll pray for you. But something even greater happened in the parking lot. You know what she did? She prayed. 
She actually prayed with my wife in a parking lot of the Farmington, Missouri Civic Center. And when my wife came back and told me that, you know how I responded? Man, that's weird. <laughs> that's really like out loud. Like you can do that. You can just pray out loud like that. That is so weird. And yet in my heart, something shook. There was a foundational thing that, that broke in there. Cause I'm like somebody who we don't even know cared enough about us to pray for our situation out loud in the moment. I want to encourage you to be intercessors in people's life before you want to jump in and be an intervener. Now, all that to say, through these first 11 verses, something that stood out to me in summary, and I highlighted these words uh, through these first 11 verses. The words were tribulation, trouble, suffering, afflicted, suffering, suffer, suffering, trouble, burdened, despaired. In 11 verses, 10 times Paul used one of those words. I think he's trying to get a point across. And so as I was considering uh, tribulation in trouble, and this many times it shows up in these first verses, I looked up the word uh, for tribulation. It's the word thelipsis in the Greek. And what it means uh, literally is to press or to crush as if under a weight. Now, the Romans were really good at a few things. Uh, one, they were fantastic builders, great architects. And if you get the opportunity to go with us in Israel, uh, to Israel in 2024, you still see Roman architecture. It's unbelievable. But they were also really good at something else, and that was uh, killing people. They were experts at execution. And one of the ways they would do it is through crushing. They would literally take a board, they would lay it across someone's chest, and in order to get a confession out of you, they would put a heavy weight on the board. And if you didn't confess, they would put another weight and another and another. And at a certain point, the person with the weight being pressed on them, you could no longer take a breath. They would literally asphyxiate while they brought a confession out of you. Now that sounds pretty awful. Um, but if you've ever been in a trial or in a place of suffering, how many times have you felt like that? Like you're being crushed. Like literally this thing is crushing me. I cannot get a breath. This is the word Paul uses for tribulation. And as I continue to study this, I wanted to cross-reference it with the Hebrew. And the word that I came across in Hebrew was the word uh, kabat, which was used in a different scenario. It still meant to crush, but it was actually used to describe what took place on the threshing floor as uh, wheat was brought in from the field. So as wheat was threshed and uh, brought there uh, to the threshing floor, they would crush it there at the threshing floor. And then once it's crushed and the, the grain would fall down to the ground, they would take these winnowing forks and they would throw them up in the air. The chaff would blow away. And the only thing that was left was what was really, truly of any value. It was the, the meal, the wheat, the, the meat of the grain. And so... As we were considering that, and then this past Tuesday morning in the men's Bible study, where we just so happened to be studying a book about a woman, go figure, look how sensitive we are. So we're studying the book of Ruth, and we're at this point in time where, uh, in looking at the life of Ruth, she has absolutely been crushed. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law. She has left her country, Moab, everything that she knew and she loved, she's walked away, but what she's done in the process is she's actually submitted herself uh, to the Lord. And so it was in this place, in this spot of submission, in this place of being crushed, she goes to the threshing floor, to the place of crushing, and it's there that she meets her Redeemer. 
Ruth chapter 3, verse 11. As Ruth meets up with Boaz, whose name, by the way, means strength, he says, And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you're a virtuous woman. Boaz's response to Ruth as she submits herself to him was one of a promise to do everything that she needed. He was going to take care of her. And you know what he required from her? Nothing other than submission. As she submitted herself to him, he didn't require anything additional. In fact, as she's explaining what happens here in verse 18 to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi says to her, Sit still, my daughter, until you know that the matter will be until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. The promise here of the one who whose name meant strength was that he was going to complete the matter. He was going to finish what he had set out to do. And for Naomi, or for Ruth, excuse me, the only thing she had to do was rest in the fact that he was going to see this thing through. And so many times, um, this is us. I'd love to tell you it was a prettier picture in our Christian walk than this. But we often do not come to our Redeemer until we are crushed. Until we're at a spot where we have no place left to turn, we have no one to turn to, and it's there we find our strength. It's there we meet head on with our Boaz. And what our strength and what our Boaz has promised us in John chapter 19, verse 30, as he was being crushed, as he was literally being pressed down upon where he could no longer breathe with his final breaths, what he said was, uh, to tell us die. It means it is finished. The man would not stop until it was finished. And so if you're in that spot today, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you if you're in a spot of tribulation or a trial that feels like you can no longer breathe, to hold fast to your Redeemer, to rest in the fact that He will not stop until it is taken care of this day. And so, Father, we thank You and we praise You for 2 Corinthians. We thank You, Lord, as we get ready to prepare our hearts to take communion. That we have this beautiful promise throughout Scripture. A promise that as we submit our lives to You, as we lay it all down to live for You, that Your promise is one of redemption. What a beautiful story. Lord, thank You that we can actually see that play out in our lives. It might not look like what the rest of the world thinks it should look like, but Lord, it looks like redemption to us. And so, Father, I thank You and I praise You. I pray that You would give us a boldness to be obedient and a confidence to not trust in our own wits any longer, but just to simply trust in You. I thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.